Good morning, everyone. Welcome. We want to welcome all of our visitors who are here today. You know, we experience many kinds of visitors. We have visitors that come here often, and we know them very well. They're only visitors in name. There are visitors who are visiting family or from church families that are around the country who may either be vacationing or even in the area. And then we have visitors from our beautiful community who, for whatever reason, uh, have come here this morning and are checking us out or wanting to meet us or wanting to worship. Regardless of what type of visitor you are, we want to offer you a very warm welcome. You are an honored guest among us, and we are so thankful that God has brought you here to be able to be with us today. Before I start, I want to especially thank Alfonso for that incredibly moving, fantastic talk at the Lord's Table. Alfonso is one of my all-time favorite human beings. Actually, many of them are here today. Uh, There are some fantastic people here in this congregation, Uh, some great servants of God whose hearts are truly of gold. Uh, As a matter of fact, as I look through the audience, I see see all of them. Uh, But Alfonso is very special to me. He is a fantastic servant of God. Uh, And that Lord's Supper talk was absolutely fantastic. Uh, I am uh, your substitute preacher today. Uh, And what's uh, even more interesting is it's not just a substitute. I'm actually... Uh, third string. <laughs> Made me think a little bit back when I was in high school and I played on the, the junior varsity football team and I was only allowed to play the last two minutes of, of a game and only if we were so far behind there was no hope that we could ever catch up. <laughs> I don't know if there was a fourth string, but I think I might have been on that one. So Every once in a while, you end up finding out, you know, that, you know where, where, where you are and what it takes to actually get you out of the field. But that being said, it is an honor to be here. Uh, it is, it's great to be able to, to join you. Um, as I was, uh, when I was younger, I used to speak more. And uh, my, my greatest dream as a younger speaker was to one day be able to preach a short sermon. Uh, as you all know, I've never been able to actually accomplish that. Uh, Well, my greatest nightmare was the day before the sermon or one or two days before, catching some kind of a terrible cold, not being able to speak, and not really having anybody to to ask to to help. Um, Because when I spoke, it was always at much smaller congregations. Uh, And I think that that happened this week with uh, the individual who's a far greater speaker than me, but an individual who we were all looking forward to hearing, that, that was David Capiro. Uh, who went in for what was supposed to be just a routine dental procedure uh, that was not so routine. routine. And so he realized that he just wasn't going to have the ability to, to present. Uh, and so he, he asked me, uh, somewhat spur of the moment, if I could help. So I immediately sent out texts and emails to individuals uh, that I thought had, had a pretty good you know, communication uh, with God and said, look, uh, just please ask, ask God to give me a message because it's, you know, time is short. And I'm sure that those prayers went up, and I do believe that, that they were answered because I think God did give me something that is, is, is going to be enjoyable to present. However, I, I underestimated the power and value of prayer because I wasn't specific enough. And what I should have asked those individuals to do was in addition to giving me a message, asking that God would give me the short one. <laughs> so next time around, I'm going to try to be a little bit smarter 
And hopefully, hopefully we'll see how that goes. Um, let me just ask in the back if they could to put up the, the presentation. I see it's dark back there, but uh, hopefully there's somebody there. So anyway, um, I want to ask you all a question this morning. Would you please raise your hand if you are having a good day today? That's pretty good. It's pretty good. That's, that's, that's quite a few, but not everybody. So my next question is, is, is there anyone here this morning who would be brave enough and honest enough, but brave enough to just admit and say, hey, it's not your fault. It's no one in here's fault, but I'm actually having a bad day already today. Nobody. Okay. That is good. That is good. It's not essential for the sermon that there be anyone in here who had a particularly bad day. But the text that we're going to be covering today is a text that deals with Jesus apparently at his worst. Uh, this, this text that we're dealing with in Mark chapter 11 uh, has perplexed a lot of individuals, and you're going to understand why as we begin to read through it. So if you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, uh, if the presentation makes it up, that would be great. If not, we're gonna, we'll, we'll be able to power through without it. Uh, but Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 12. Now, if you remember from last time when uh, our brother Holloway spoke, he's the the first round draft pick, by the way. Uh, When he spoke last week, he talked to us about Jesus's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus was hailed as a king. You might say that that would be a good day. Jesus would be viewed, he was viewed at the time as being this great king or really the potential messiah. And so as he walked into the city, he was lauded with honor and loved. You would think that that would leave some type of a residue, an after effect, if you will, and that when he would go back into the city the next day, he would be very excited to be there. But something happens that night. And it changes changes Jesus' perspective. And we see it in his behavior as he manifests himself in some very odd uh, ways. So beginning with me in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Commentators call this the mystery of the fig tree because it doesn't seem to make any sense. There are a lot of things in this, in this story or in this, this, this small little uh, group of verses that perplex us. First of all, Jesus, uh, Jesus appears to be in a legitimate bad mood. And this is after a day where he was exalted as king. It is uncharacteristic of Jesus to usually be in a bad mood, and especially for a reason or for reasons unknown to us. But there are more things about this story that don't make sense. Jesus goes to this tree expecting to find fruit on it, but Mark tells us, just so we know, this was not the time of the year that these trees had any fruit. So Jesus goes to a tree that he knows shouldn't have any fruit, finds that it has no fruit, and then is further upset. And then he curses the tree. 
and says, May no one ever eat from you again. There are some interesting uh, clips that I found. One was with a tree being cursed by Jesus saying, What did I do? This one I thought was probably more appropriate. This is probably the, the tone of the disciples when they saw Jesus in a somewhat uncharacteristic bad mood. Um, there are a couple questions that would immediately come to mind why Jesus would be upset. First of all, what did the tree do wrong? It, nothing. But it said that Jesus was hungry. Well, how hungry could he possibly have been when he fasted previously for 40 days and 40 nights without even complaining? And then there's the other possibility that with his power, he could have just made the fig tree bear figs. If he was that hungry, he could have just reached out his hand and just a fig would have just miraculously appeared and he would have been able to feed himself. So Mark specifically tells us the fig tree wasn't supposed to have anything on it. And then he also tells us that the disciples overheard, which makes it sound like the disciples were somewhat back. They were not standing around him. And Jesus was up closer to the tree and when he cursed the tree, he must have said it in a much louder voice, out loud, with force, and strongly. Which, of course, might have led the disciples to say, uh, remind me not to make Jesus mad. <laughs> because they must have been wondering, too, what was wrong with this tree? Well, it does get worse. As Jesus now reaches Jerusalem, as we continue reading, he enters the temple courts. So we already realize that he's in somewhat of a bad mood, and it's about to get worse. We're told he immediately begins driving out those who are buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not even allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said this, Is it not written, that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. So Jesus makes a whip, and he begins to violently whip these changers, these, these merchants, overturns tables, just with things flying all over the place, and we're told, and this is what's kind of unique to Mark, not only did he do that, but he went around to people who had their little shopping bags out, and he, and he just began to knock them out of their hands. So Jesus really had what we might call a moment, and a very interesting one at that. Jesus had been to the temple many times before, yet he never exhibited this type of attitude before. This is the only, if not one of the only, examples of Jesus and physical violence. This is one of the things that really stands out to me. Jesus, the individual who in the Sermon on the Mount taught us that we were to turn the other cheek, although he had not been attacked here, Jesus goes on the offensive. He becomes the aggressor and in a very angry moment begins to overturn tables, beat people, and slap things out of their hands. This is very hard to reconcile with the kind of Jesus that we have been reading about up to this point in time. This seems to be very odd. So I think that we could say that something is wrong. And generally, when something is wrong with God, there's a reason for it. As we continue to read, we find out the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this 
about what he had done in the temple. And they began looking for a way to kill him because they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out from the city. You can only imagine what that walk out must have been like with the disciples. I would imagine they were a little farther back than usual. Uh, Jesus had just just went on, on a rampage after cursing a fig tree that wasn't even supposed to have any figs on it. And they must have been saying, and I'm sure you know, one of them said to, to, to the others, look, I don't know if anybody has any questions, but don't talk to anybody. <laughs> Especially don't talk to Jesus. Something is wrong. He is really upset about something. And you can imagine that they were walking, as it were, on, on eggshells. So they, they go to bed. They, they get up the next morning. And we're told that in the next morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered by the roots. So Peter, now finally, I guess, has a reason where he thinks he can speak to Jesus without, you know, threat or, or fear. And he says, hey, Jesus, you remember that tree yesterday? It's dead. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, you would expect Jesus to begin to explain, let me tell you why I did that. Let me tell you what happened. But he just completely overlooks the question. At least he appears to overlook the question. He doesn't talk about the fig tree. and He doesn't say, look, this is the reason why I did this. This is what the fig tree did wrong. But you know that since this is the, maybe the first time that Jesus spoke to his disciples after the rampage, that this would be what was on his mind. This would have been what, what Jesus was stewing about. And so this response does somehow give us the answer of why Jesus did what he did. And his response is this, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you that if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have faith received it. This is a little different than other verses that say believe that you will receive it. He says when you ask something in prayer, you ask with such conviction that you believe you already have it, and then you will receive it. So are are we confused? <laughs> we should be. I was. As I began to think, what is going on here? And what do you do with these texts? They seem to be completely unrelated. Jesus is having a terrible day. Why did he do this? How do we describe this? But then, as I began to think about this, I began to think about what Jesus was about to do. And I remembered this one, I looked at the verse right before my text. It would have been the last verse of Jim's text last week. After Jesus is hailed as king, we're told that he goes into the temple and he looks around. And then he walks out and leaves. Now, I realize that may not mean anything. It's, he just walks in and, and walks out and leaves and decides to go home. But he must have thought something. And it must have been a thought that really moved him and created within him a heart that was disturbed. And the question is, what might he have been thinking? And I think that that last text that we just read gives us an answer. I want you to think with me about 
where Jesus was, Jerusalem, his final week, and what was about to happen. What he knew was about to happen. And what he saw when he was in the city of Jerusalem, a city that he loved. I want to read to you a passage in the Old Testament that explains the dream of what Jerusalem could have been. This is a text in Deuteronomy 28. The first few verses of this chapter, which are the blessings on Israel if they follow God's law. Deuteronomy 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you only obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your and your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction and they will flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything that, that, that you put in your hand. The Lord your God will bless you in the, la- in the land he's giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you an oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your ground and the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouses of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God, I give you this day and carefully follow them. You will always be at the top and never at the bottom. Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving after them. The dream of Israel. What could have been. A nation that was wealthy, a nation that was powerful, and a nation that was literally invincible. I love this particular text that that is in that Deuteronomy passage. Why, why Why did God want to bless Israel to make it an invincible nation on the earth, to make it the world's superpower? Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by my name. One of the plans that, one of the hopes or dreams of Israel is that they could become the road to salvation of the world because all the kings of the earth and the rulers and these pagan rulers would see that they are nothing in comparison to Israel. They will realize our gods really are nothing in comparison to Israel's. Let's find out what the truth really is. Who is this God? And there is this great prophecy in Isaiah, too, that one day all nations, all these kings are going to come to Israel. They're going to flow into the mountain of God, and they're going to say, teach us your ways. We find out that ultimately we'll find its fulfillment in the New Testament. But at the time, it was something that could have happened in the old. If Israel had just followed and trusted God. But as we know, it didn't happen. And in the very same text, in Deuteronomy 28, 
We find out what would happen if they forsook God. The dream would turn into a nightmare. And a nightmare it became. Here in Deuteronomy 28, we're told the Lord will cause you, if you disobey him, to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction and you will flee from them in seven. You will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on earth. This is part of what's a large section called the curses of obedience. Jesus knew what was on the horizon for his city. This is a city that he loved. This is a city that meant everything to him, that he had created from days long ago. A city that could have become everything, but in the end became nothing. He knew that this city would ultimately reject him and kill him. And he knew that the recourse would be inescapable and unavoidable. He knew that the city would, would be destroyed. It will only be two chapters later where we will read about Jesus telling his disciples, one day in this city, in that temple, not one stone will be left upon another. You can see how this would have made Jesus very sad. And there's a text in, in Matthew 23 where we see how Jesus felt. And this, this may have actually been stated by Jesus at this very time when he was in Jerusalem in Mark's account. Matthew 23, 37 and 38. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. And so what we have here is the, what was to be the path to prosperity for Israel became a road to ruin. And what caused their ruin? Pride and arrogance, political alliances, and religious extremism ultimately did them in. There are a lot of lessons for us in this text of their downfall. Pride and arrogance. Uh, very interesting that we know that God promised that he was going to bless Israel in every way possible. But there are earlier texts in Deuteronomy where Moses is very clear with Israel that their greatest danger will be that when God blesses you, that you will ultimately say that you did all of this for yourself. To say, look at all that we have done as a nation. Look how great we are, and you will turn away from God. And finally, at the ending of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31, verses 15 through 22, God calls Moses aside right before Moses is about to, to die. And he says, I, and this is after the blessings and cursings that we've just read. And he says, Moses, I want to tell you what's really going to happen to Israel. And he tells him, this people, they are going to disobey me. They are going to serve other gods. And they're ultimately going to bring upon themselves my wrath. That's exactly, he goes, what is going to happen. I've already foreseen it. And so the fall of Israel was not something that came as a surprise to God. And the dream that became a nightmare was also not a surprise. But Israel's path to ruin started off by not recognizing where their prosperity came from. And, I, and that made me think about myself and about us. Where do we think our prosperity comes from? We live in the most prosperous country in the world. We don't have to worry about food, water, or clothing. Even the poorest among us have basic needs taken care of. 
And when we're asked, how is it that we have these things? What is our response? What a great nation we live in. We have the best system. Capitalism. You know, we, have, we, we have the hardest workers. We have the can-do spirit. They've lost it everywhere else. You know, we, 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 these are, this is what makes America great. The reality is, is what makes a country great is when God makes them great. It is not them, it is not their own power. And when we realize that our prosperity comes from God and that prosperity is meant to be shared, when you realize that you, what you have is not your own, you think about an individual who might win the lottery, several, you know, hundred million dollars, and they buy a beautiful house and, and va- you know, a vast, maybe a vast ranch and the best cars and uh, the best clothing and the best of everything. And somebody says, wow, how did you get that? And they're like, I just work really hard for it. And man, did I work hard and boy, am I smart. You would think, what a fool. He didn't do any of that. It was just given to you. Many of us think, you know, we are so smart because we have so many things. The fact is, God gives more to some so that those some can give to others. Our stuff is not our own. Political alliances, this was something that really did Israel in. One of the things that that Joshua would constantly tell the people of Israel when they went into the land, God says, don't make any political alliances. When you make a political alliance, there's going to be a trade-off or a compromise. The number one thing you have to do with another nation when you make an alliance with them is to serve their God. You've got to add their God to your list of gods because that's how alliances worked in those days. And God says, don't do that. But yet time and time and time again, when Israel was in trouble and armies were surrounding them, what did they do? If the armies were from the north, from Assyria, they would turn to Egypt and say, help us out. If it was Egypt, they would turn to the north and say to another nation, help us out. What do you want from us? They would create these alliances. Two weeks ago, Brian Bergman gave a fantastic message. And one of the points that I remember from him, and this is so important for us to remember, we cannot overstate it. If we believe that our strength in any way comes from, our, from, from politics or political alliances or political parties or political candidates, we are fooling ourselves. But yet we get so wrapped up. We have to have this candidate win because this is the one who is for God. We have to have this go this way because we need this law passed because this is for God. And what we don't realize is when we put our faith in politics, we're putting it in the wrong place. Rather, we should vote and we should go to the ballot box. But where our faith should be is on our knees when we pray to God for our nation. May God's will be done. And we leave it at that. We leave it at that. And finally, religious extremism. Boy, Israel was full of political parties that thought they had the answer. Political religious parties. We all know about the liberalism of the Sadducees. These, these, these were the priests, and they were the, the chief priest, uh, uh, or the high priest, was a Sadducee. And these were kind of in league with the government. There's a reason for that, since Israel had no real king, and the people of Israel didn't really respect the Herods. They all respected their true leader, which was the priest. 
So the priests were often viewed as being the people that the governments, the foreign governments could come to and kind of negotiate with. These priests learned to compromise with these political governments. That's why they were very liberal and didn't accept all of the Old Testament and had all kinds of issues. They didn't believe in spirits and resurrections and all that kind of stuff. They, they followed more of a Greek philosophy. But then there was the monasticism of the Essenes. These were the ones that said, this city stinks so bad, we're getting out of it. And so they went out into the wilderness and they formed their own community. They, they just left. Jesus didn't do that. Then there were the Herodians. The Herodians were not necessarily priests. They were more of the wealthy of the people, of the Jews. But they were like, look, Herod is the divine ruler. I mean, Herod obviously has been chosen by God. We need to, be, we need, we need to cooperate with Herod. We need to like, follow Herod. We need to be supportive of Herod. Again, our, our future, our success lies with our political alliances and being in power with the right people. And then ultimately, there was the legalism of the Pharisees. These were the individuals who thought that they could make Israel great again through massive extreme conservatism. You know, I, I want to share this thought, and again, I could, I hope I'm not offending anybody. <laughs> Look, I'm not Jesus up here, I'm not going to beat anybody, but, but these thoughts I, came to me, and I, I just think that they, that they were very relevant. If I had a dime for every time I heard growing up, uh, you know, because we always hear about the polls, uh, not the polls, but the, the, uh, the surveys and how church attendance is down and this is a, there's a problem here and a problem there. We're always in decline. Everyone's always in decline in religion. That the way to get it back is we've just got to go back to our roots. Now, the roots generally is we've got to get back to that old conservative thinking. Some would say, no, we need to liberalize more. But others will say, no, we've, you know, we've gone that, that route. It's not working. We've got to go back to, to the roots of, of going back to who we are as a people and the, our very conservative roots and making sure we do everything right in our assemblies. And all that is true. But I'll tell you what I've never heard from anybody, ever. I've never heard anyone say, you know, if we really want to make the church great again, not that it's not great, what we need to do is serve more poor. We need to do more things to help people who are needy in our community. We need to be better to the people around us. We need to sacrifice more, give more, and help more. For some reason, I've never heard anybody ever say that. Because the view seems to be as long as we make sure that we do the Lord's Supper right on the first day of every week, God's going to say, thank you for that and I'll bless you. You guys are the only ones who do that right. It's like, well, we may be the only ones who actually do do it right, but is that really enough? And so finally, what, is a, what this results in is Jesus saying that we need to trust in God as the dream. Something big was about to happen. God was about to start a, a whole new kingdom, a, build a whole new house, a new covenant with a very new nature. It would be more powerful than anything before it. It wouldn't have a single soldier, however, not a single sword. It would not fight a single battle. And yet it would triumph over the, the, the world's greatest empires, even the Roman Empire, without a shot being fired, not that they had guns back then. But the whole of the Roman Empire would be eventually brought to its knees with the emperor himself saying, Jesus is the one true God. That was prophesied in the Old Testament. 
that the fourth kingdom would ultimately bow to Jesus, and it did. But all of that would happen, and they would do so without any weapons, without any political influence. They would do so by one means only, faith. And that's why when we look at what Jesus is saying, in the end, what he's telling us is, he, like God in the past, had gone to Israel as a hungry God, if you will, thirsting for, for the love and affection of his people, but never got it. Much like the fig tree became a figure for that, which is why he cursed it on the way to Jerusalem. When he went to Jerusalem, he realized that they were about to suffer great violence, and he was so angry because of what they had done to his father's house, what they could have been, but what they failed to become because of their lack of faith. And so when his disciples come back to him and say, what about that tree? His response is, have faith. Believe in everything that you ask God will give you. Now, we think much like, uh, we, sometimes we treat faith much like a toy uh, or prayer like a toy. It looks nice and it kind of makes noises. But after a while, we're like, why doesn't this thing work right? I hit the buttons and it doesn't work. God says, if I ask for anything, I'll get it. And I've been asking for tons of things, I don't get anything. What, you know, why doesn't this thing work? And we just kind of like toss it aside and say, well, you know, I, I don't understand verses like this. But we forget that there are other verses in Scripture that tell us a little more about the idea of faith. They tell us that if we, if we ask anything according to God's will. Now, we think, well, if, if I just ask God to make me rich and wealthy and get me a better job, I mean, that's part of what, what's here. But we forget that Jesus just spoke with the rich young ruler. And he told him, if you want to be perfect, you need to give up everything and come and follow me. Do you honestly think that when God told the rich young ruler that the word, you need to get rid of the thing that's destroying you, which is your wealth, that God's going to respond when we say, oh, God, give us great wealth? He's going to say, oh, sure. I mean, if he did that, he would be, he would be destroying us. James says we ask in prayer for things in a selfish way, and that's why we don't get them. But the kind of prayers that we should be praying should have God's kingdom in mind. It should be about, God, don't make me rich in wealth, but make me rich in spirit. Make me rich in peace. Father, it's not my, you know, please, you know, don't make this one candidate, you know, make sure that he wins, otherwise the world comes to an end. God, may your will be done. Because whatever happens, good or bad, I'm going to follow you. My faith is in you. And living a life like that, that is salvation. That is what Jesus felt Israel could have done, and it would have made a difference. And that's what he says will make the difference for us. If we just simply have faith. Let's be that miraculous fig tree that always has figs on it, even in the difficult times when we shouldn't. Let's wear those figs so when God comes to us, He's always refreshed. He always sees, now this is somebody who knows how to trust. Whatever you ask, I will give you. Because I know you're not going to ask me for a new car. But I know you know what to ask for. I need servants like you. Because with you, I can change the world. If you're here this morning and have never obeyed the gospel, we want to give you an opportunity to make that decision. Uh, God's house is a house with many rooms. And there's certainly one for you. If you have never, never been baptized for the remission of your sins, for the forgiveness of your sins, 
That is the doorway in, and we would like to offer that as an opportunity to you today. But if you have any prayer requests or any needs, this is also an opportunity to make that known. Uh, Brother Bob Perkins is going to be coming forward, or an elder will be coming forward to take those from you. And we would like to invite you to please come this morning as we stand and invite you.